Welcome to the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Well, we're continuing our series uh, on the Heart Sutra. Uh, now we get into the part that we uh, should all know. Last time we did on those little uh, extra portions that the Tibetans love. But uh, now we uh, start with the verse that we recite here week in, week out, for some of us day in and uh, day out. And uh, it goes like this. Feel free to sing along. Avolokitesvara Bodhisattva Awakened One of Compassion In Prajnaparamita The Deep Practice of Perfect Wisdom Perceive the emptiness of all five conditions and was free of suffering. Okay, well, let's start at the very beginning. Who is this uh, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva, a.k.a. Guan Yin? A.K.A. Canon, A.K.A. Kanji Zai. You may notice in the Japanese version we uh, chant it today. It doesn't begin uh, with uh, Kanon Dai Bosatsu. It says Kanji Zai. Who is that? Well, they're all the same. And you may also notice that I'm also in... Uh, Translating and creating our tree leaf version, deciding that uh, foreign words usually should be explained when possible or added. Uh, I added uh, a couple of things that are not usually found in uh, many versions. So if you go to uh, other Sangha, you may find these are all translations, as, as we've discussed last time, because the original was uh, perhaps in Chinese or Sanskrit. The scholars debate that. But then it was uh, taken to Japan, where they kind of made a version that is, we'll say, half Japanese. It's really Chinese pronounced the Japanese way, right? There he is. There he is. Okay. We were missing you, Sekishi. So it's really Chinese pronounced the Japanese way. And then it came to the West. Uh, let's say in the English-speaking places, you will find many, many different versions. Which one is correct? Well, if you do any translation, you know that there's a lot of, how to say, the, the translator's feeling and uh, interpretation and uh, poetic sense can go into any uh, translation. So it's not like you can say which is the right one. You can argue that some are wrong because the word that they've used in English has nothing to do with the original. 
But there are many, many ways to express a translation from Chinese or Japanese when you're coming into English because uh, the language structures uh, open themselves to many word choices or many ways to structure the sentence that are a little different. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong. And if you look at almost all the translations that are popular in English, you'll see they're basically saying the same thing. So sometimes there's just something that's wrong, but most of them are just right. They're just different ways of saying it. So what I decided to do was I put in a little explanation. And I said, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva, awakened one of compassion. Just so people would know, coming to this, what's an Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva? By the way, can you say it three times fast? Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva. Try that in your spare time. Okay. And uh, also Prajnaparamita, not uh, a standard word you're going to hear in Brooklyn. So uh, I don't think. So I put the deep practice of perfect wisdom. Those phrases are my addition to explain what those words mean. So you're not going to find that in other versions. But who is Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva, a.k.a. Canon, a.k.a. Guanyin, a.k.a. Kanzion, or Canon or Kanzion. So there's another one I forgot. And then Kanjizai. Well, first off, what's a Bodhisattva? Well, you are a Bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is, uh, literally means a being who is seeking enlightenment or wisdom or a being who has experienced enlightenment or wisdom or a being who is enlightenment and wisdom. Now, you might say, wait a second, I've seen pictures of Kanzion and the other uh, great bodhisattvas with the sitting on lotus leaves with lights coming out and people, uh, angels with harps. And that doesn't look like uh, most of this uh, kind of rough bunch I'm looking at over here. And uh, well, yes, but no. The reason is uh, anyone, any uh, person who is seeking wisdom is a bodhisattva, we might say with a small b. And we take the Bodhisattva vow to rescue all the other sentient beings, which you all have, right? I believe we have today. And uh, then you are living your Bodhisattva vows. But then there are these great Bodhisattvas. Canon. Uh, by the way, I should have brought the Canon Bodhisattva. Would you wait? Wait a second. I'm going to bring one of them over. Let me just run over here. <clears throat> Say uh, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva three times while I'm gone. Sorry, sorry. Okay, I'm back. Let's see. Okay. All right. So then we have, uh, this is a thousand hand, thousand arm, Canon Bodhisattva, who's there. I wish you could see it a little better, but you can, there she is with all her hands. Found that in Korea. Okay. So. Who is Canon? The Bodhisattvas, such as Canon, uh, or behind me, you see Monju. Uh, Manjushri is another one. Manjushri often is a symbol of 
wisdom and practice. And canon is a symbol of compassion. And what they are is very uh, idealized images of the best of what it is to be a person, a human being, like a saint. Hi, sexy. How come you get the close-up? Wait a second. <laughs> so, compassion, wisdom, are the ideals that we are looking for in this practice, and canon certainly represents that. And yes, they are, there we go, idealized figures of who we aspire to. Do they really exist in the universe, I'm sometimes asked. Is there really a canon out there on a cloud somewhere? And here's what I always respond. Yes. Why? See those thousand hands? There are hands. The moment a bit of wisdom comes into this world or compassion through you and all of us, it's a real force in the universe. I often say, too, the devil's real, too, when you do bad. When you act like a devil, there is a devil in this universe, evil. And when we act good or with compassion, then the bodhisattvas are real, as real as real can be. Like love is real when you love. Kindness is real when you're kind. Unfortunately, hate and violence are real when we act with hate and violence, you see. So, that's a real bodhisattva right there. And those hands and those eyes, on each of the eye, hands, there's supposed to be an eye. It's very strange. It must be hard to grip your coffee if you've got an eye in your hand, but that's another issue. Uh, each of the hands has an eye because canon... There's some debate what Avalokitesvara actually means, and canon and kanzion are a little different, but it either means something like he or she, we'll get to that in a second, who sees the sounds or the suffering of the world or hears the sound of suffering in the world and reaches out to help, thus all the hands. Why all the heads and hands? We'll get to that in a second. But uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of things to see. So uh, it's probably a Hindu influence that came in. You notice a lot of the Hindu statues, the Brahmin statues from India. Man, they got all the arms and all the heads, and right? Yeah. You know. So probably at some point, that's where Canon got all the heads and hands from the Brahmin influence on statuary. And last couple of weeks, I, I read a lovely paper on the art history of canon statues. So uh, uh, that's where I picked up a couple of points. I'm going to tell you a couple of things. I learned a couple of things I'm going to tell you in a second. But um, the idea basically is more hands, more power, but also for a compassionate being, more hands, more hands to help. And the heads, there's all kinds of debate, 
one head was not enough to see all the suffering in the world. So pop, 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 all these heads upon heads uh, appeared to uh, see in all directions and then some, you know. And there's a, you know, a flaming aura around there too, just to, to show the power. There are so many different forms of canon. Why? Because there are so many different forms of suffering, you know. Um, canon uh, Avalokitesvara appeared in India sometime after the historical Buddha. It's not probably something that was there, except in our hearts, at the time of the earliest Buddhist teachings, but the Mahayana tradition and the, the bodhisattvas, these ideally idealized figures, developed in various ways. Some of them may have developed from local gods or local, some of them from Hindu. Uh, there's a Tara, who's uh, apparently a Hindu uh, goddess who's very popular in Tibet, and Canon got mixed together. What happened in the, the history of the art is sometimes Canon was seen, I believe, as a helper to Shakyamuni to embody Shakyamuni or then Amida's compassion. I may have this wrong. And then she went independent. You know, that's what people do. You know, after a while she said, I'm hitting the road on my own. And she became her own thing, not just uh, an embodiment uh, of, uh, of a Buddha. But they're all embodiments of Buddha because they're all kind of absorbed into the Buddha, all the compassion, all the wisdom. And then they, there's the word, emanate. They're emanations of all that compassion. Um, pretty much he started male. And then this is one of the reasons we have taken Canon as our symbol this year for same yet diverse ancestors on our lineage chart, which I posted today, because he gradually became very ambiguous including some lovely artwork that it was very recent in recent, um, when I say very recent, I mean a few hundred years ago, so not like modern art, that where there's Canon with a rounded female figure and, uh, you know, a chest and a mustache and beard. So there was still that ambiguity there. What probably happened with uh, over time is as Canon became more and more a symbol of compassionate and uh, how to say motherly loving help it was felt that for you know the female form would embody that more even in the old days dad's tough and mom's you know the one you go to for a hug so cannons are the big softy and became more feminine though it was always ambiguous and of course in the buddha male and female and all different varieties and preferences and genders vanish. But yet we come back to earth and we have same yet diverse. And canon is such a symbol of sameness yet diversity. And there are so many forms of canon. There's this form, there's canon You'll see sometimes Canon walking on the ocean or, or on a big fish or riding, surfing, literally surfing on a dragon. A bit popular with the fishermen and the people who work near the ocean in China. 
So they developed that form. There's a very interesting one that I thought, boy, that looks a lot like the Mother Mary from Christianity. And I thought, well, it's just a coincidence. But I read a very interesting thing in this paper. Little footnote, we're going to have a little aside here. In Japan, uh, there's a, a wonderful Martin Scorsese movie about this, if you ever get a chance. Uh, there were hidden Christians because uh, the Christian missionaries came, had big success in Korea, big success in China, and the shogun said, no, 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 not here. So it was outlawed, outlawed. Christianity was outlawed. That's why to this day, uh, Christianity is very big in Korea and uh, exists uh, in pockets in China, but in uh, Japan, it's relatively small. They had to go underground, the Christians, uh, on fear of death. And they were, they were uh, literally crucified if they were found by the shogun. So they invented something called the, uh, they, they're called the hidden Christians, and they invented the Maria Cannon, which is they would take a statue of Cannon, one of the more feminine uh, Mother Mary-looking forms, and they kind of hide a cross. They draw a cross on it. So that, you know, they all knew it was representing the Madonna, but it was really, to the outside, anyone looking, it's just canon. So that's fine. But if you look closely, there's a hidden crucifix. And I believe I have one I found uh, there. So I thought, well, that's good. It's just a coincidence that um, some of the canon statues look like the Madonna, but actually no. Apparently, what happened in China, you know, they, there's the Silk Road. People are traveling up and down the Silk Road. And also, there's, there was started to be contact by ships and things. Somewhere, I think it's about to maybe the 1600s, there started to be Christians who came to China with their Madonna statues. And actually, our canon looks like Madonna because it was greatly influenced by actual Madonna statues that were brought to China, including there's a, some of them have a necklace on it. That's a cross. Apparently it was a crucifix. So if you have a Madonna in your house that looks so boy, you say, boy, that could, if I put it in a Catholic church, maybe no one would notice. That's maybe a reason. It actually was copied from uh, an, uh, a, a, some Catholic or other uh, artwork that somehow made it to China uh, many hundreds of years ago. Anyway, end of footnote. Back to canon. So she's, uh, she's now a she or a he, whatever you want. They, they is a good one for canon. They are a symbol of compassion. Now, what's compassion? Big question. Not what you think it is. <laughs> well, it is. Let me say that. It is exactly what you think it is as compassion, but it's usually not only what you think it is. Let me explain. Through the centuries, just like you would think, compassion means feeling really great empathy for someone who is suffering in a worldly sense and wanting to help them. Someone's sick, you want to put a, a, a cold cloth on their head and nurse them back to health. Someone is hungry, we feel compassionate, we empathize with them, we want to feed them. Someone's in any kind of trouble, the human impulse is to help. Through the centuries, in all countries 
where Canon has been, uh, China, Korea, Japan, anywhere you are, Canon means just what you think it is. Compassion is just human compassion. And people prayed to Canon, just like you might pray to, uh, if you're a Catholic, to a saint for a little help in life. My child is sick. Canon, please come and help. Doctors say they can't do anything. Maybe you can. My crop is failing in the field. Canon, can you help bring some rain like that? Just for what you'd think. One of the reasons Canon is probably the most popular, widely, widespread figure in Buddhism, much more than the Buddha himself. I bet you you find 10 Canon statues for every Buddha statue, something like that. Because uh, Canon's the, the, the one that you go to when you're in trouble. On the other hand, the compassion of Canon does not mean just that. And that's why Canon is at the start of our Heart Sutra, which is about wisdom. You see, the compassion that Canon ultimately offers is not bringing the rain. Sometimes she may, sometimes she might not. Sometimes it'll rain and sometimes not. It's not bringing a cure. I hope your child gets better, but that's not really Canon's power. Canon brings emptiness, which is the wholeness beyond rain and drought, sickness and health, birth and death, up and down. Buddhist compassion, which emanates from wisdom, is insight into the emptiness, which is the wholeness of all things, which is what the Heart Sutra is about. That is the power of canon, really. And so we'll see in the rest of the Heart Sutra here that canon's realization is about emptiness. What emptiness is, how it occurs, how we have insight into it, and what it means. So let's get into the sutra. So Avalokitesvara, this awakened one of compassion, in Prajnaparamita, which is the deep practice of perfect wisdom. Compassion is somehow sitting wisdom. And it's called the perfection. The bodhisattvas have various perfections, perfection of charity, the perfection of diligence. I'm going to miss one, the perfection of meditation, the perfection of ethics, living the precepts, almost forgot it. And from all that, you know, we practice diligently with charity, giving. Uh, we practice the precepts ethically, avoiding to kill and to steal. And then we sit zazen. And then there's the realization of wisdom. So compassion, bodhisattva, is realizing wisdom because they're not two. That's the Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, which she is practicing deeply, profoundly. And she 
perceived, or they perceived, or he perceived, they perceived, they perceived the emptiness of all five conditions and was free of suffering. What does that mean? The emptiness of all five conditions, sometimes called the skandhas. You will see that a lot of the Heart Sutra has to do with the mental process by which we divide up the world into pieces up here in the cabeza. For those who don't speak French, that means the head. That's a joke. Uh, then we decide some of those things are friend and some of those things are enemy and some of those things uh, we want more of and some of those things we want to run away from. And we are a separate self standing apart from all that. Buddhism, this is a place where Buddhism was way ahead of itself by a couple of thousand, way ahead of the modern world by a couple of thousand years and is perfectly compatible if not anticipating of modern neuroscience, without a doubt. It's one of the places where I can say absolutely Buddhism was on the case and had insights into how the human mind and senses work way before uh, anyone ever invented uh, an EEG machine or a CAT scan. Basically, the Indians, now this may go way, way back to the time of Buddha. Of course, the, the, the Buddha is quoted in the old suttas of starting to teach these things, or it may be something that developed soon after. But whatever, the early Indian Buddhists were very good in analyzing how the mind works. And they were right. Now, their way of expressing it may not be exactly how a modern neuroscientist would express it, but you'll see it's the same process. Basically, there's something, comes in the senses, gets up here, tr translated into electrochemical signals. They left that part out. They didn't know about electrochemical si signals. Gets in the senses, gets up to the brain, brain cuts it up into pieces, starts dividing it, including dividing it into me and all that stuff that's not me. And what next thing you know, you got a whole complicated, divided world. A lot of Buddhism and a lot of em emptiness is quite simply reversing the process. And this is what the Heart Sutra does. It is the key to reversing all that dividing and categorizing and me versus not me uh, doing. Okay. And you can imagine what you get when you reverse the process. Union, right? Okay. So anyway, what are the five skandhas? Having researched this, I found that even Buddhists are not quite in total agreement what the five skandhas mean, but it's generally something like this. First, you have form, also known as rupa in uh, fancy Sanskrit Pali talk which means um, kind of the body or stuff. We might say matter. 
In the old days, they thought all matter was made of uh, water, fire, air, and uh, there's one more, water, fire. Anyway, just like in the West, they thought the basic elements were water, fire, air. I know I'm missing one. Water, fire, air, ground, ground, I think. Ground, yes, ground, okay. And now we might say the periodic table and quarks and bosons and things like that, right? But it's stuff. Now, it may be the stuff of your body or the stuff out there. The Buddhists didn't separate the two because stuff is stuff. You're just atoms. The table is atoms. The room is atoms. The world is atoms. Atoms are atoms. Stuff. All right? And then, uh, apparently, you have a brain that has the next skanda, sensations or feelings. You might say that this is the first reaction at the very end of the nervous system. The first nerve sensation when you touch at the end of your finger or the first contact with, of the eye with a photon and uh, something happens on the retina, right? It's that early sensation, right, of sense to sensory stimulation, which is somehow coming over out of the form. When now we would say the photons are traveling into the eye and hit the retina and poop, something happens. Uh, there's an electromagnetic uh, impulse at the end of your finger and you feel something. I told you they're way ahead of their time here. Now, one of the points they may agree, disagree with modern science is they would say that that already inherently has a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensation. And I would argue that that doesn't happen until you get up on the brain. The small point. It's the first contact. And then you have perception, which is the sensory or mental process that registers, recognizes, and labels the, the first sensation. Up there, and it goes, ow! Or hey, that's something, or I feel so, you know, it's the first mental perception of the raw stimulation of the nerve ending or the retina. It's gotten up here, something like that. Again, it doesn't have to be specific because, first of all, I'm not a neurologist. I couldn't even describe what the modern science says about this exactly if I wanted to, but you get the basic idea that the sensation has hit the eye, somehow gotten up here, and then we're getting a perception of it. You know, whoa! <laughs> I Feeling! You know, like that, something, all right? And then you get mental formations, which are basically um, our ideas about all this, which is closely connected to karma because once we get our ideas and we start saying, oh, wait a second, table, flower, hungry tiger, like that, we get our ideas and we start reacting to it, right? And we say, oh, hungry tiger, don't like that guy, running away, table, I'm neutral on tables. Flower, beautiful, like those. One more of those, like that, okay? And then we, of course, start getting into our likes and dislikes, what we want more of, which leads to desire. Like, oh, chocolate chip cookie. One more of those, right? But get too much, get a stomach ache. So excess desire becomes a problem. This is the root of karma, you see. 
but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. At least you get the basic idea that all these sensations got up to the brain and they're now getting split up into stuff or images of stuff. As I described yesterday, sorry, there are no desk chairs in the universe. Desk chairs basically idea exist as a shared, uh, what's the word? A shared, I don't want to say a shared dream, a shared composite that we've come up with because we're creatures with butts who believe we have work to do with these things called desks. And ant crawling across a desk chair doesn't go, I'm crawling across a desk chair. No, it's just a surface. It's trying to get to that crumb over there. It's functioning basically at ant would be functioning where? Only at form and sensation maybe with very, very little perception, right? So these, are, these other things are from the higher brain. An ant, I'm, if you get my point, is basically a pure perception machine and stops at sensation. So it's not saying desk chair. My cat, who's sitting in my desk chair right now because I'm not occupying it, doesn't say I'm sitting in the desk chair. No, it's just the warm place he likes to sit when I'm not in it. So desk chair for human beings is just the rupa, we can say the material, the atoms and bosons out there in a certain shape that we have come up here as a shared dream of human beings with language to say, oh, okay, desk chairs. These are real things in the universe. They're only real things for creatures with butts and work to do. And I like to say if the jellied space aliens come from the other planet and we say desk chair and they don't have a butt, we're going to have some explaining to do because they're not going to see it. They're going to say, what? I see there's some shape there, but what's a chair? Because I don't sit down. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. You get the point. So we make all these mental formations and then consciousness and the Buddhists tend to divide consciousness into the eye consciousness, the, the taste consciousness. You'll see this is all tied to the senses. The basic point is up here now is we're conscious and we've divided the world into things, some of which we like and some of which we don't and some of which we're neutral about. And the basic division we've made is between what's inside our skin and everything out there. I am inside here and everything else is out there. And when this skin one day turns to dust, I'm gone, right? And when they suddenly develop this consciousness inside, I was born. So we've divided the world into things and we've created the separation of self and not self. These are the skandhas. But Avalokitesvara perceived the emptiness of all these five conditions, these five skandhas, and was free of suffering. Why? Suffering is not just pain or old age or losing at the racetrack, or having your candidate not win the election you wanted. Though there's a lot of suffering, I know. We use the English word suffering because there are unpleasant things. It's very important you get that pain or things we don't like or discomfort is not the Buddhist sense of suffering. Suffering is when the world 
is not how we want it. So as I often say, it's not being sick. Sick is being pain. It's pain. Suffering in a Buddhist sense is when you don't want to be sick. If for some reason you were in a deep meditation and you were fine with the pain, you're not suffering. You're still feeling pain. It's a fine distinction, but very important for our purposes here. If you lose at the racetrack and you're okay with that, you're not suffering. If your cat dies and you're sad, you say, oh, I'm sad, I'm suffering. No. If your cat dies and you're sad, but somehow deep down you're profoundly okay with the sadness, you're not suffering. The Buddhist suffering is the resistance to what is, which is our judgments about all these things of the world. And that's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks and months of this series. So when we realize the emptiness of all things, that we reverse the process of division, we reverse the process of cutting everything into pieces, we reverse the process of judging, and we reverse the process of creating the basic separation of me and everything else, how can you have conflict? It takes two things to bump into each other. For the people on the podcast, hitting my hands together. It takes two things to bump into each other or feel friction. If the separation vanishes because all things are empty of separate existence, all the division ceases, the basic I, not I, me, not me, vanishes. No suffering is possible. Still may feel pain in this body, still may not like that your cat died. But when the idea of cat and separate self and all these things starts to evaporate, Buddhist suffering evaporates with it. And one is left with just, I like to say, emptiness is not nothing. I like to say, the flowing wholeness of all things in a Buddhist sense. It's empty of separate self-existence, you and all things. The division <laughs> evaporates into this flowing wholeness. And that's going to be our subject. So Avalokitesvara reversed the process of the division in the brain and the sensations themselves were empty and the things outside also empty of separate self-existence, all the separation vanishes. Ipso facto, that's a, my favorite fancy Latin usage today. Ipso facto, ergo, suffering vanishes too. And that is where we will pick up. Well, well one thing I got to mention um, uh, Dogen here. I'll just leave Dogen. I'm not going to really talk about Dogen. Dogen uh, wrote uh, one of the chapters on Shobogenzo like this. And uh, you can just see his uh, playfulness. 
he he basically quotes the exact same section about uh, Avalokitesvara, but he's expressive. He's the jazz musician. He tossed in a couple of things just, you know, just to toss them in there that are not in the original. And one is this, that um, uh, Cannon realized with the whole body, and this doesn't, my, my uh, I, I want to tell you, Mike Cross, the translator of uh, Shobogenzo with uh, Nishijima Roshi, was very much into physical practice. So he put the whole body, but it really just means all out, thoroughly, is the real meaning of this. So it's not the, he didn't realize it just with the whole body. He, he realized it thoroughly. Uh, they realized it thoroughly uh, that the uh, aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness are all empty because it's from a poem. It ties into a poem by Dogen's teacher, Ju Ching. And I'm just going to read this uh, poem. The whole body, like a mouth, hanging in space. And my image there is like the Rolling Stones cover, you know, the, just the mouth hanging there. Just with the tongue sticking out. You know. The whole mouth hanging in space, not asking if the wind is east, west, south, or north. For all others equally, it speaks prajna, wisdom. And then the bell sound. Chidiching, chidiching, chidiching. I'll leave you there this time. Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.